Good afternoon, good afternoon, and good afternoon. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Ask Sharifa Videocast. I am your host, Sharifa Hardy, and I have another incredible show for you today. So I'm going to ask you to do what I always ask you to do, and that is to go out and be an evangelist for Ask Sharifa Videocast. There's someone in your network, maybe in your neighborhood, I don't know, they might be in your house or at your job, but they're starting on their entrepreneurial journey. They're starting down this road and they need this information, but they won't have this information unless you go ahead and share the show with them. Because as I always say, friends don't let friends miss out on Ask Sharifa Videocast. Now today we are talking to a young man who is changing the world. He's actually right there in Minnesota and he's been the voice of the people. We're gonna speak with Dr. Ron Bell. We're not only gonna to speak to him about what's going on in the world, but we're gonna talk about his latest book, Four Promises. Dr. Ron Bell is both a pastor and an author. He is the senior pastor of Camper Memorial UMC and a regular guest columnist for the St. Paul Monitor. He has written articles for the Upper Room and has published articles in the Minnesota Coalition for Death Education and Support Quarterly Journal. Welcome, Dr. Bell. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm excited. I'm excited to have the opportunity to sit down and chat with you to find out what's going on in your world. And I always start off the, the show by asking who you are, what you do, and what you're passionate about. So who I am is Ron Bell, uh, son of Reverend Ron Bell Sr., uh, Dr. Joyce Ann Bell, father uh, of two beautiful boys, uh, uh, six to nine-year-old and husband to an incredible wife, uh, Dr. Ebony M. M. Bell, um, from the East Coast, from, from Maryland, but I've been living here in Minnesota for the last three years doing ministry. Uh, I am a pastor, I'm an author, a writer, columnist, a musician, and lover of anything Jeep Wrangler, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. So that's, that's kind of a, a nutshell who I am. Now, Dr. Bell, I enjoy what you have to say, but what keeps poking out at me, this little word is Minnesota, Minnesota, Minnesota. And, you know, with the George Floyd tragedy, Minnesota is on the map. What are some of your thoughts about what has gone on in Minnesota? What is going on in Minnesota? What are your, what are you feeling now? Yeah, so, so, and let's, let's just go back a year ago, because yesterday marked the year since George Floyd was killed. Now, mind you, this is five minutes away from where I live um, here in St. Paul, Minneapolis. Um, and so the day after he was killed, uh, murdered, uh, you know, we had protests, we had riots at night. Uh, we had gotten word from, our, from, from the mayor here in St. Paul that our church was on a list. They had, they had gotten a list um, where, where, where white supremacists had infiltrated um, the protests and rioting, and we're literally going around, setting on fire, burning down uh, black businesses, churches, uh, and our food, you know, our, our food stores. And so our name, <clears throat> our church was on that list. And so the day after George Floyd was killed, we're barricading our church, we're getting our community engaged. We realized in that week, not only um, are we the only black church in, in the area, but our area is actually a food desert. And so as the businesses are being torn down and burned down, we got to find ways to make to get our folk medicine, 
because uh, they would usually go get their medicine at the grocery store to find a, find a way to get the food. So we just constant. So we were constantly in those first few weeks to months, really just kind of just reacting, serving the community, figuring out what was wrong, what was needed, showing up in those spaces. One of the things that I realized during that time was just the amount of trauma we were all carrying, just day to day, whether it was racialized trauma. Um, trauma as a result of the economic disparities, educational disparities, how all that stuff became a powder keg um, in that moment. And so we started looking for Black therapists and Black counselors uh, to kind of really begin to mitigate some of the issues uh, there in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and there were none, right? So not only are we had, did we realize that we were in a food desert, we were also in a mental health desert. Right. And so and so we had to begin to look outside of St. Paul, Minneapolis, to find black psychologists, black counselors, black therapists, black social workers. And so we had them engage um, the community at the church. And so we started sponsoring uh, trauma healing days and we put together over a thousand trauma bags for the kids in the community. We're, we're starting a trauma healing circle at the church. Um, I was so convicted. You know, I went back to school to Rutgers University to get certified in, in trauma crisis care. Um, but, but, but we saw that thing really begin to unfold around black trauma, racialized trauma uh, in the community. What's, what's happened now um, in the last four or five months uh, on top of the racialized piece of George Floyd and that whole stuff, Eric Chauvin and the ultimate conviction, uh, uh, COVID-19, our kids being at home for a year and now coming back, there has been an uptick in the last three, three to four months on gun violence. Mm -hmm. And so I believe, I believe on record to date, right now in Minneapolis, over 700 people have been shot, right, in less, less than a year. Here in St. Paul, over 300 people have been shot, right? So right now, today, after I leave this conversation, uh, I'm going back to the church because now what, what we're doing is we are training members and leaders and pastors to go stand on these corners where the shooting is happening to engage the community. And so after I leave this conversation, I'll go back to the church and help walk the, the volunteers through a process of, of, of being a non-anxious presence, observing your anxiety, your tension, your trauma, all those kinds of pieces as we go back to try to take back our streets. And so that's the goal now is to, so we, we, we move this conversation from this racialized trauma piece to really disengaging the community around taking it serious our, 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 our mental health. There's, there's a lot of stuff in flux here in Paul, Minneapolis. Now, um, I, I want to have this is Dr. Bell, I'm stuttering a little bit because so many times I don't have the ability to speak freely. You know, I have guests and I want to ask certain questions and I'm like, mm, I don't know if I have that, but I feel that I can ask you these questions. Please, any question. One of the things that Dr. Umar talks about, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with him. Umar Johnson. That, yes, that, that other people don't say is that in our community, we need Black therapists. We need black psychiatrists and other people will say, you know what, it doesn't matter, they're whoever they are, no matter what their race is, they're trained to be a therapist, they're trained to be a psychologist. That's why, that's all we need. Why was it important for you and your community and your church and the people you work with to go out and specifically look for black professionals? Because that, 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 that's a great question. Because there, there are pieces of this thing that there are no words for, 
that can only be understood by folk who have been through it. There is uh, a sigh. There is a, a, a way that you just kind of comport your back, right? There's a, there's a way that you look away that if you are not black and haven't gone through that experience as a counselor or a therapist, you'll miss it. You'll miss those pieces, right? Um, um, th there's a way in which we don't feel comfortable sharing this intimate piece where we don't want to spend the front half of conversation explaining our trauma, right, to white therapists or feeling that or feeling that, that there's no there's no protection or comfort there to be able to really release all of the stuff going on. So it's imperative, critical to have black therapists, black counselors, black voices, black faces. So that we can begin to heal. I'm doing some work right now with um, uh, a local private high school, um, and 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 it's around this issue of not having. They they had 900 students and not one black teacher. Oh wow! Right? Yeah. So 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 you can imagine with George Floyd and the whole piece, you got black students that are crying out. You know, have nowhere to go to, no one to connect into. Um, and so part of the work I'm doing with them is helping them realize the importance of just having space for Black folk to rest, to heal, to begin to make those connections. And you gotta, you gotta have folk that look like them in order to, to be able to, to, to do that work effectively. Now, in the, in the school that you mentioned where there were 900 students and not one Black teacher, and when you went out and you looked for these Black professionals, did you have a hard time finding them? In Minnesota, yes. Okay. Yes, in Minnesota. But but one of my arguments I've, I've been pitching to them and to other institutions is you can look beyond Minnesota. Mm -hmm. the, the same way that we recruit for the airlines and recruit for the 3Ms and the IBMs and the you know tech folk and whatever. Same way we recruit for all of those pieces, MBA, whatever else. We can recruit quality black teachers specifically from our HBCUs. They're there. The counselors are there. They're there. Mm -hmm. We just have to look for them and recruit them. Now on that same vein, when we're saying, okay, well, let's go get the black professionals, let's bring them in. I have never, and I love to hear your thoughts on this, and I'm 45, just turned 45 in March. In my lifetime, I have never heard the sentiment been, sentiment been made so um, much as people saying, well, you know what? Slavery is over. There's no systematic racism. People need to get over it. I've never in my life heard people say that sentiment as loudly, as freely, and as often as I have within the last year. Maybe it's just me, Dr. Bell. I would love to hear your thoughts. No, you're 100% right. You see where Texas just passed last week, uh, a law that you can no longer teach critical race theory. Mm. Texas. That's where Juneteenth came from, right? Wow. And they're saying we don't want to talk about race anymore, right? <laughs> Tennessee uh, just did the same thing um, what was it, two months ago, uh, um, 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 uh, passed a piece about uh, the, 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 uh, the three-fifths compromise and it being a good thing for Black folk, right? So, 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 so it's, it's happening all around, but what you're, what you're really seeing is a reactivity to change that hasn't been dealt with. What you're really seeing is white folk wrestling with their trauma and not knowing what to do with it. And so because they because they don't have language or the ability to express or deal with it, they're just reacting out of it. So creating policies and procedures that help them stay safe in their own trauma, their own shame. That's, that's what you're really witnessing. 
Well, I, I am definitely seeing that because I, I talk about this often. In the last year, I have done more race panels than I ever have in my life. And I've been in this industry. I've been a radio host since 2009. This is what I do. But it's the last year when people were like, Sharifa, we want you on our panel. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear what you have to say. And I sat down with white people who said to me, um, Sharifa, we had no idea. We had absolutely no idea. If it had not been for George Floyd and his tragedy, I would have never known. And my response to them was, how could you not know? Like, I don't just accept that you, you didn't know because you live in this bubble. You know, this is America. We've been talking about this for years. I don't just believe that you didn't know and all of a sudden you care. Have you seen that? Or maybe this is just in my bubble. No, no, it's, it's there. The problem is, that they can exist in a world where they don't have to know. Mm -hmm. That's white privilege, right? They can construct an entire universe where there's not one thing that, that, that resembles humanity and blackness. And they, and, and, and they have no problems with that, right? right? There's a, um, I think it was James Baldwin who said that in order to hate, you have to first dehumanize. Mm -hmm. Right, and it is, it is the dehumanization of, of, of each other that gives us the ability to hate and, and to be indifferent, mm -hmm. right? And so if all I see of black, if, 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 of white folk uh, is caricatures, mm -hmm. right? It's stuff on TV, um, and that's all I see. If I'm living out in the country in my own piece where everyone looks like me and same affinity group, you know, the school is, you know, 100% or at least 98%, you know, my folk, my people, and the only thing I see of, of people who are different from me are, is on TV or on radio or in you know, books that I can literally dehumanize them and not even realize. I can make them caricatures, right? And so, and so, and so you take that a, a generation, two generations, three generations, four generations, and you can almost go three, four generations and never have had real contact with anyone outside of your race. And so it, it can be that easy in terms of dehumanizing, that easy in terms of creating your own bubble. And the more we dehumanize, the more we, we, we create space between the ability to have empathy. And where, is there, and where there's no empathy, that's where you get that mess around. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Right? Because, they, because we're, we're so separate. We're so separate. And so George Floyd's death had a way of breaking down a lot of that stuff. Um, that has been built up for years. Um, and so we're, well, I think the combination of George Floyd's death and the position of Donald Trump, I think those two things in, in conversation uh, uh, became so stark for America that you could not look away. You had to reconcile these pieces, something because you could not, you could not, not see the imbalance, right? Right, you had to reconcile that. And so I think, I think a lot of folks, the conversations you're hearing around folk really wrestling with, well, how do I make sense of these pieces? Yeah. Yes, but I also saw that it was one of those rare times when the whole world took notice. Usually yeah. something happens and it's like, okay, it's affected Minnesota. You know, I'm in California, we have our tragedy, but this affected the entire world to where people said, okay, enough, we have to do something. For, for a lot of people, um, that was these conversations and these panels, but I found that a lot of people really had no idea what racism is or what racism, like every aspect of it. And I found that interesting. I'll give you an example. What I mean by that is I was invited to speak on a panel 
And the day before the panel, they sent me a list of 20 questions, right? Now, one of the first question out of 20, and I'm, I'm giving you literal numbers. I'm not giving you exaggerations or roundabout. Like there were 20 questions. The mm -hmm. first question was, what can we do to help the Black community? That was question number one. The remaining 19 questions never mentioned race, never mentioned the Black community at all. It was just like, how do we make this world a better place? And I was like, oh, y'all want to play with me? Like, and I, and I literally, once they went live and brought me on, and I said to them, uh -huh. in my adult, grown woman, outdoor voice, this is mm -hmm. what happened. You sent me these 20 questions. Most of them were fluff, right? They're fluff. I don't mm -hmm. do fluff. If you yeah. want to have a conversation and you want to talk, let's talk. And they were like, okay, Sharifa, let's throw out the questions. And we proceeded to talk for this panel for two hours about what they wanted to know. But that was my experience. And I saw yeah. the underlying tones of racism within the way they approached this situation. Do you, you yeah. understand what yeah. I'm saying? I do. I do. I do. I do. I have often said in white audiences, uh, um, I, I will not be your racialized tour guide. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I will not lead you comfortably at a comfortable distance from the tragedy of race and, and, and your actions. You know, instead, I will engage you in conversation. We can have critical discussion around, you know, you know, systems and history and culture and economics and where we're at and solutions. We can do that together. But this this t tour guide stuff of I'm going to just give you solutions and answers so you can check off that you are part of discussion and go home and go back to your, your, your life, I, I just can't do it. I won't do it. I won't do it. I won't that's, do it. That's I exactly, totally understand. Mm -hmm. That's the, the same exact attitude that I approached because I felt, and it's weird, and I'm so glad we're having this conversation because it was a weird feeling because a mm -hmm. mix of me felt that they were being condescending. And then the other part of me was like, well, they do want to know because they don't know, but it's like, okay, but you should know. So why should I have to explain all these things to you that you really should know? And then what got to me is at the end of all these different panels, they always asked me for a solution. It was like, yeah. well, Sharifa, what does the white community need to do? I'm like, what does the white community want to do? You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you want to, you know, yeah. that they were coming to me for the solutions. Have you ever had that feeling, that experience? Oh, all the time, almost weekly. Yes. <laughs> almost almost weekly i'm asked to be a part of discussions and conversations and and that's always in there well, well ron what should we do ron what's the next step right and so and so what i would do is exactly what you did is i will invite them to participate and name me what they will commit to for the next step right not me dictating not me saying go out and buy my book or go out and hire five new black folk or go out and do x y you know let's let's commit to a process that you can have skin in the game and, and be engaged in so that we can find solutions together versus me being prescriptive, right? Because that that changes that, that changes the, the, the dynamic. I think, I think, I think we've gotten so caught up on this this, 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 this word allyship. Yeah. Right? Right? White folk wouldn't be allies, right? Yes. And, and I get it. I get it. But I think what, what I'm interested in. Uh, it's not allies, but abolitionists, mm -hmm. right? People who are willing to put their lives on the line, um, uh, skin in the game, staying fully, you know, with those who are running the past and doing running the plays to find solutions. Not those who are simply will stand on the sidelines and root 
when things are well and go home when things get tough, right? That's an ally. We need, we need abolitionists. We need folk on the field who are willing to commit to being a part of the process of finding solution, to finding victory. And that's a different level of engagement that you know, not everyone is ready for. But they need to be clear that they're choosing not to do that. They're choosing to simply stay here versus be seen as there. Uh, I love it. I love it. And then I have to tell you this, and I'm not going to ask for a comment from it and, unless you want to volunteer it because people have been getting in trouble. But I have been spellbound by this whole Kwame Brown thing. Like I have been <laughs> watching it from beginning to end. Like I've missed meetings and conversations because I'm like, wait a minute, Kwame's talking. I have to hear it. You know, and my stance has been take, ignore the curse words, ignore all the, the language, but get to the fact that I, I love a man being a man. I love a man saying, this is my truth. This is what I believe in and I don't care who likes it. And then my yeah. dad is like that. And it's so often in this society, we, we're not allowed to be a man. That's why I just love yeah. the title when he did a video, just simply, it's okay to be a man, you know, and especially a black man because society will protect everybody else. You know what I mean? You can't talk about them. You can't talk about them. You see how fast those Asians got that bill. But yet, yeah, you can talk about yeah. any, you know, black person or black woman or black man that you want. And so I was applauding him all weekend and I was just tuned in. So I thought it was very interesting and I, and I like that kind of thing. But again, I'm, I'm not going to ask for comments. Don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> what, what we haven't talked about is your book because i'm rambling mm -hmm. on let's talk about your latest book four sure. promises i read it, it um, that was like a couple of weeks ago before the interview i had to find out and what i loved more than anything about your book is that so often people any race just in general are talkers they just talk this is what i did this is what you should do i love the aspect that your book had a it was a workbook and yeah, we, yeah, yeah, and I and I found so many things about myself that I believe I wouldn't have even considered had I not gone through the process of mm. having this workbook. Wow, that 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 that, that, that means so much. I wanted I wanted it to be a workbook. I wanted it to be something that folk could use, right? As I think about my own trauma and how I process through my own stuff with 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 with, with, with my own counselors, right? It's all hands on. Right. And so again, it goes back to that whole ally versus abolitionist, right? It's it's me participating in my healing. And so I wanted the book to have that same aspect. I wanted the questions to pro people to have to actually write to participate, right? I wanted the exercises uh, 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 in the beginning around breathing and sensing and noticing yourself. I want all those to be participatory so that as you're engaged in the book, there's this dual sensory thing going on. We are both reading it, you're participating, so it begins to stick longer. It has a more uh, uh, is 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 more effective um, in helping you move toward the place of healing. So I'm I'm so glad to hear that was that was helpful. No, it was very helpful. And I didn't even tell you this before. I literally had to step away once when I was going through the process because it was bringing up emotions that I hadn't necessarily wanted to deal with. But I say, no, you have to do this. You have to commit to it. But then I'm also that kind of person that goes, okay, well, I can't, I can't right now. Like at this moment, yeah. Yeah. it's too much. And then I came back at a clearer, more um, calm time and I went through the process, but it was me looking at me, looking at, you know, my the, you know my processes and my trauma which was very interesting because i didn't even realize that i was um affected that way you know does that make sense that's so powerful and the powerful piece is 
that you were aware, mm -hmm. right? You gave yourself permission. You were aware. Nah, not right now. I see it. It's valuable. I want to put it in, a, in, 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 a, in, in the best space. So not right now. I'm going to come back to it. That's powerful, right? Because what the, what, the, what the world will make you want to do or what the world will suggest to you is that you have to do this microwave thing of get it, get it now, fix it now, solve it now, jump, you know, you know, do it now. When the reality is when you back up and give yourself permission to be fully present, that's promise number one, right? Then you can then you can begin to say, okay, well, well, well you know what? Let me come back to this at a time and space where I can really give it the value of it. I can sit with it. Let me let me let, let, let me wrestle with this stuff. Uh, place it somewhere so that I can really value it because it's just as sacred as everything else. So that's 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 really good to hear. Really good to yes, hear. Yes, it, it was. I really enjoyed it. What made what are the four promises? Let's talk about that first. So the four promises are, are simply this. I promise to give myself permission to be fully present. I promise to create rituals or practices um, that allow me to begin to heal in my trauma. I promise to find circles, find or create circles that can that will allow me to continue to heal in my trauma. And the last one is I promise to retell the story of my trauma in a way that gives me power and authority, right? And they they are consecutive, and so and so they ought to be done one one at a time, right? Because I can't retell my story in a way that gives me power if I haven't first given myself permission to be fully present, right? I can't find circles that are healing if I haven't first developed practices and rituals that, that, that give me the ability to be whole in the midst of my trauma. And so they are consecutive. And so as we give ourselves permission, then we can, be, then we can begin to find rituals, practices, right? As we find rituals and practices, we can, we can begin to be attuned to circles where healing is happening. And as we're attuned to circles where healing is happening, then we can begin to retell our stories in ways that give us power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So those, those are the four promises. The ritual for me that I committed to, and I have been doing this for years, it wasn't just for promises, but it made me get to the commitment of it is my meditation, getting up in the morning and stopping, you know, for at least 15 minutes to have that time with myself and with my, my creator and to really think about what was going on with me and give me an opportunity to go into the day. So that was one of the things that I committed to that was a direct result of going through. And I won't say reading this book because that's not what mm -hmm. it is. It's about mm -hmm. going through this process because yeah. that's what I did. Yeah. It was a process yeah. that I went through with the book. That's how I looked at it. That's powerful. That's powerful. My 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 my, my father, and I'm not sure this is if this is this is in the book or not. It, 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 uh, it uh, might not be. My father was a United Methodist pastor, um, like myself, pastor for 40 years. Um, um, he passed away December 14, 2018. Oh, wow. Right. He was my hero. He was my hero. He really was. I used to, we used to call each other every Monday to compare sermons, see who to see who out preached the other one, right? <laughs> I, I love it. I used to love it. I used to love it. He was my hero. But when he died, it left a really big vacuum, really big hole. Um, and so when I became ordained in 2019, of course, he wasn't there. And so here I am about to go into this ordination service and this elevation and all this stuff. And I'm carrying this grief. I'm carrying this trauma of his absence, right? 
And so one of the rituals we did was, well, let's just go out to dinner because that was his big thing was to go out to Cracker Barrel. I'm not sure if you had Cracker Barrel in, we in, in California. Okay, go to Cracker Barrel. He would always eat the worst stuff, like the, the fried chicken, the uh, <laughs> the um, with with chick, chicken and dumplings, all the stuff you shouldn't eat, right? And so, we'll, and so what we did was we said, well, let's just go to Cracker Barrel and buy all the stuff he would eat. Aww. Right, right, and just celebrate there, and that became the ritual. Right. So even in his absence, my ritual for dealing with that anxiety, that trauma, that grief I carry is to honor his legacy, his memory in food. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and so that helps give me space to begin to go to the, the, the extra. In, 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 in. So each of us need to find rituals and practices that help us do that kind of work. So it's great to hear that your meditation does that for you. But these things are necessary for us. Yeah. Yes, it was is a commitment to it. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, I became an ordained minister in 2004. Okay. Now, part of that reason was because I was going through what I now see, you know, only the good Lord knows the future. But one of the lowest points of my life, I mm -hmm. was getting laid off overall, been laid off eight times. Mm -hmm. And so each time it was my faith that gave me strength and i yeah. wanted to take this message out to everybody else that no matter what you're going through again like i said i've been divorced twice i've been laid off eight times i've lost everything except mm -hmm. for the clothes on my back and so i but each time i would walk literally walk as i was going through different things and say okay lord i know you didn't bring me this far just to bring me this far and, yeah. and i kept going and i wanted to take that message to other people you mentioned that you were ordained in 2019. What I know you talked about your father, but what made you at this time take that step? Well, you know, it, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, before I answer that question, that's, that's really the question. Before I answer that question, I want to I want to point out that when you just told that story, uh, laid off eight times, divorced twice, lost everything, sat close to my back, uh, you know, the, the whole piece. Right? You you didn't tell that story from the perspective of the victim, right? Because right. there's a way of telling everything you just said from the perspective language of the victim, right? There's a way of doing that. You did that from the, from the perspective of the victorious one. Thank you did that from the perspective, from, from, from the language of one who has survived, thrived, and come out on the other side, right? right? That's the right. full promise. That's the retelling our stories in ways that give us power in the midst of our trauma. Yes. Right? Because I guarantee you haven't always been able to do that like that, right? No. There, there was a process you had to go through in order to get to the point to be able to tell that story with such power, such authority and knowledge uh, 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 that you're at now hasn't always been there. That's, that's the importance of working on trauma working through your trauma, working through your process. No, it, you are absolutely correct. Thank you for even pointing that out. It, it was because I think I was going through it, you know, at yeah. some point, and I would never be able to speak on something while I'm going through it. And now I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm no longer in that place. And it's not just because, and I say this because I'm one of the most humble people you will ever meet, Dr. Bell, I tell you, I promise mm -hmm. you that. But so I'm humble, but it's not just the money in my bank account that tells yeah. me I'm different. You know what yeah. I mean? That's there. Yeah. I've gotten to, you know what I mean? That's there. 
But the key is, I know I'm not going back there. I have de developed the skill set and yes, the sir. relationships to know, okay, that was, that was the old me. And even in my relationships, there's a certain level of peace that I have with people that my life is just good. It's just happy because of where I am. So I know that I've overcome that. And so as a business consultant, working with businesses, I have to be able to have that strength because they will tell me, every reason under the sun why they can't do something or why they can't mm -hmm. be successful my husband beats me mm -hmm. i have cancer you know mm -hmm. and i'm like no you know mm -mm. you know because you came to me to talk yeah, about yeah. your business so you yeah, have the yeah. desire yeah, to have yeah. a business to be an entrepreneur to be successful so let's not focus on all these reasons and that's when i would go into well i've been through this I've been through mm -hmm. that. I've been in domestic violence situations. I've been through mm -hmm. so many things that mm -hmm. I don't even talk about. So I know I can use my story to not, not only inspire, but to take away the excuses. So even if I don't inspire you, my main goal is I, I don't don't bring me any excuses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Sonia Sanchez mm -hmm. who said, I will become a collector of me and put meat on my own bones. Right, that's exactly what you're saying. I love it. I love it. I, I love it. See, now I forgot the it. question I asked you, Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> like, you I answer what I want to answer. I was talking about that's good. I forgot the question now. I had asked. <laughs> you asked me about ordination. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so I've been a United Methodist pastor now for 13 years. Okay. Um, and as a part of the process. Um, there are different levels of ordination that you have to go through at different stages. Um, and so, you know, at first it was the schooling, so you have to get your doctorate degree, or I, I, I had to get my doctorate degree. Then it was two years of provisional, which turned out for me to be three years because I moved from the East Coast to, to, uh, to uh, Minnesota. Um, then there's two more years of eldership training and writings and meetings and all that kind of stuff before you become a full full. full ordained elder. So it was just the process that took 12 years in order for me to for me to get there. Wow. So what inspired this the four promises is your third book or your fourth? Yes, my third. My third your book. Your third. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm adding too much. What inspired <laughs> you to do your first book? So my first book was bigger than hip hop. Seven questions for reaching young adults in ministry. And at that time I was a new church plant pastor. And I just started my doctoral program at Lancaster. And a lot of the questions being asked of me at that time, this is not, not, again, this is 12 years ago, but a lot of questions being asked was, how do we, how do we reach young adults in ministry? How do we get more young people in? And it just so happened that the new church that I had planted was all young adults. And so we had, we started with two people, grew it to, you know, 200 plus within, you know, a month or so, and it kept growing and multicultural, but it was all young people. All you know, 21 and, and, and under. And so wrote that book as a way to help other churches really kind of see how, how you attract young people, how you engage them, what their needs were. And so that book really, I just I just interviewed uh, a bunch of young adults and said, what do you need? What are you looking for? What's missing? I asked them the seven questions. We put with, with their answers in practice for a few months at the church. And then the book is my reporting on what happened when we tried to put in practice what they said they needed and wanted in their voice. And so the book is a compilation of that. So that was, that was the first book. 
Okay, so if I heard you correctly, and I'm 45, mm -hmm. so my hearing is not what it used to be. But you say you got 200 young people to go to the church within 30 days, within a month? Within a couple months. A couple months. A couple months. months. Okay, mm -hmm. so I know we got to read the book. You can't give it all away. But what are some of the key things that you did to reach these young people? Engage them in conversation that made sense on their level. Uh, I think that was the most critical one. Uh, being attentive and present and practical. Um, and, and, and then also I think being accessible, right? Because the if, if you've got a 18 to 35 year old, right? What they need to hear, what they wanna hear, what they're looking to hear is how do I have a, a successful relationship? How do I manage money? How do I find a job? How do I become an adult? So they're, they're looking at those core pieces, right? And so if you can engage them around those pieces, those fundamental pieces of adulthood in a way that's affirming to them, they'll stick with you. Now, if you want to come with all the thus the thou sermons, <laughs> right? you want to preach to them for hours on end, they're not coming back. But, yeah. if, if, but, but if you have a night where you just talk about relationships, marriages, ministry, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, that, that, that is engaging for them. That's what, that's what they're looking for. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I have a friend who, who is starting her ministry. I'm going to pick up a copy of your book for her because we were having this discussion with a young lady who's approximately mm -hmm. 26. And we were talking about how society is saying that right now there's a grand exodus of young people leaving the church in droves. Like they don't want to be a part of organized religion anymore. And I yes. believe part of that is that whole idea of you go to church, you listen to one person talk for, for a couple of hours, you pay your time and you go home, but there's no interaction. I was talking to her about this whole idea of coming up with more, and it's not a new idea, but just more activities within the ministry. Yeah. For people to participate in get to know other people and so i like the whole idea of the relationships and the money those are things that they need for life which to me is what the church is supposed to be about 100 and it's and it's where the church does its best work mm -hmm. and we never talk about it right the the oldest marriages you know are probably folk in the church right right right, right? the people who have retired well probably go to church Right. People who have who have businesses and who have stacked and who are investors probably go to church, right? And, and so and so the stuff we do well, but we never talk about. Right. And you've got young adults who are struggling, who are asking, "Well, how do I get there? What do I do?" And we're not, we're not engaging in that conversation. And so, beginning to do that, to uncover that, to unchase that, I think I think I think engages them. Yeah. Wow. No, Dr. Bell, I know you're important. I know you have a lot going on and I have already gone way over. I've taken so much of your time, but I, I can't, I'm telling you, and I apologize to anyone who's offended, but I can't always ask everyone every question. You know, some people I just got to ask the safe, how is your business? Well, what do you do? You know, but we can have this real dialogue. We are coming, you know, we've been here for a little while. We are coming down to the last few minutes of the show. And what I love to do at the end of every show is just simply allow my guests the opportunity to speak directly to the audience to everyone who is watching this show live as well as everyone who is watching it in the archives and let them know what you want them to take away from your appearance here today great great so 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 here's what i would say you 
the question we need to ask ourselves every day is, are we breathing? Are we breathing? Right? Because a lot of times what happens is when we experience trauma or anxiety or grief, we stop breathing. And when we stop breathing, we stop giving our brains uh, the oxygen necessary to analyze and critique and to put us in the best position uh, as humans that we can be. And so if you take nothing else, take that question every day before you respond to your boss, before you respond to your spouse, before you respond to your children, before you respond to even the stuff you're engaging in. Am I breathing? Am I giving myself the oxygen and air necessary in order for me to be in the best position that I can be, in the best form of me that I can be? And so I would, I would share that. Uh, the book has some really great resources in it tools in terms of, of how to make sure you're breathing, where trauma sits in your body, um, you know, how to really begin to mitigate some of that stuff, how to find, you know, practices. But that's the central question of the book. Are you breathing? Mm, and where can people find your book? You can go to drrondell.com uh, uh, and, you, and you can get the link there, the Amazon link, or you can go straight to Amazon as well. Uh, the Four Promises a journey of healing past and present trauma. So either way, you can find, find, find the book. Well, wow. I have enjoyed our conversation. The opportunity to sit down and chat with you. It has definitely been a pleasure and enlightening. I, I support you in everything that you're doing. I believe that you're helping the people, you're helping the community. And dare I say it, you are a real man. You are a strong man, Black man going out there, helping the people. And I salute you, King. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You are so welcome. And I also want to thank everyone who tuned in to watch this show live, as well as everyone who is watching it in the archives. As I always say, please don't just watch the show. And I appreciate you sharing the show. But the most important thing is that you support our guests. Go ahead and pick up a copy of Four Promises. You can get it on the website at drronbell.com or on Amazon. And like I always say, please reach out to our guests, follow him on social media, have the conversation, engage, support our guests. Our guest was here today to support you, share his beliefs, his journey, and his story. So support him. And if you are interested in more ways that I can help your business, or maybe you want to be a guest on Ask Sharifa Videocast, please visit my website at AskSharifa.com. Until next time, everyone have a safe and a blessed day. Bye now.